Would you take the Word of God and turn with me in your Bibles, in the book of Exodus, in uh, chapter 27. Exodus, in uh, chapter 27. We have uh, taken a look so far at the furniture within, first, the Holy of Holies, the Ark, and the Mercy Seat. And also we took a look at the furniture within the holy place. Uh, there is one item that we know is in the tabernacle that has not been mentioned yet. Uh, that is uh, the golden altar or the altar of incense. And uh, that will be mentioned later in Exodus chapter 30 with regards to the service of the priest. And so, so far that's been left out, but... Uh, we have seen that uh, Christ is pictured in the ark and the mercy seat is pictured in the table of shoe bread and also he is pictured in the bread that sits on the table. And uh, we also saw that Jesus is pictured in the candlestick uh, that lights the tabernacle. And then we went to in uh, chapter 26 to the curtain and we talked about the four layers of the curtain. Uh, the first one emphasizing uh, the deity of Christ, the second one emphasizing the humanity of Christ, the third one emphasizing the suffering of Christ, and uh, the last one really emphasizing the fact that there is no beauty on the outside that we should behold. All the beauty is on the inside. And we looked at the structure of the tabernacle, and, uh, which is to raise up the tabernacle, and what we find in the structure is, is an invitation to come in. That God wants to have fellowship and communion with man, and so He has made an entrance. Remember, the tabernacle is the curtain. The first curtain that is mentioned, that is called the tabernacle. And when the boards are mentioned, they are mentioned in order to raise the tabernacle. And so that means that uh, when the tabernacle is raised, that means man can come in. And speaking is telling us that God wants to have communion with man, but as soon as we see that the boards... Uh, raise up the tabernacle. Immediately after that, we study on the veil. And the veil communicates a separation. And we mentioned that there are really three areas of separation. There is a separation between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. There is a separation between uh, the Holy Place and the outer court. And there's a separation between the outer court and the outside. And every time you see that there's more restriction coming in, as you get deeper and deeper into the Holy of Holies, but we find that in Christ we have entrance. We who were aliens and on the outside have been brought into the outer court, been brought into the holy place, and finally into the Holy of Holies, the place that no man could enter into, because Jesus is the veil. And the veil, that is to say, Hebrews, that is to say His flesh, and that was taken out of the way by the sacrifice of Christ, and we have access unto the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. Now, with all of those pieces on the inside, we're going to begin to look now on the outside of the tabernacle. We're going to look at, and by the way, we'll see later the altar of incense will be spoken of in relationship to the activity of the priest in the tabernacle. Now, in our text, we're going to see that in uh, chapter 27 that he speaks of an altar. Uh, it is later in chapter 40 and verse 6 that we see that it is uh, 
the altar of the burnt offering. In chapter 40, verse 33, uh, it mentions that it is the tabernacle and the altar. It is called the brazen altar. Uh, and so we're going to see those come later. And it's hard for me here to, because we're going to get there, not to preach a whole message on what we'll see later. And so I have to uh, use some balance here. But we're going to begin to look now on the outside of the tabernacle, specifically at um, the brazen altar. And so we, we saw in the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, uh, in here is the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, Christ is pictured in that. Everything that is inside the Ark, from the material, that points us to Jesus Christ. The table of shewbread uh, speaks of fellowship, that Jesus Christ is that table. He is the one who, is, uh, who brings fellowship, but the bread means that Christ is the very substance of our, of our fellowship. And also in the candlestick, He is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And uh, we have seen those things inside the tabernacle, but there's now something on the outside that we're going to look at, and that is the brazen altar. Now, if you look at it, it seems that, oh, there must be a mistake at its size. It looks so much bigger than the other pieces. That's not a mistake. It is significantly bigger than all other pieces of furniture inside and outside uh, the tabernacle. Indeed, perhaps you could even, based on the size, fit every single article of furniture inside the brazen altar. And so it's much significance. We're going to see how that points us as well to Jesus Christ. So let's read our text, Exodus chapter 27. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 8. Notice with me the word of God says, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans, all of the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hallow with boards shalt thou make it. As it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 2. He's speaking of the altar and he says in verse 1, Thou shalt make an altar. Verse 2, And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. The four corners of what? The altar. And so I'd like to preach this morning on, this evening, on the brazen altar with its horns. The brazen altar with its horns. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word, and I pray that you would help us to see Jesus Christ in the brazen altar. Uh, Lord, help us to, to see again, once again, what this testifies, how this points us to Jesus Christ, uh, that certainly the truth concerning Christ would stir our hearts this evening. Uh, Lord, help us to, as we grow in, in, in our faith, as we mature, uh, Lord, please help our love for you to deepen. Uh, we know we do not love you as we ought. Our love comes and goes. It is fickle. Your love is everlasting. It is unchanging. And Lord, we desire our love uh, for you to be more consistent, uh, to be exercised in greater measure. So may these messages help us in that area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look here at the entire text that I read, I'm really going to spend some time emphasizing uh, the, the first two verses. And that's because of the, the, the amount of uh, content that we find with regards uh, to what is mentioned initially. I'm just going to go and talk about, first of all, the brazen altar and its position. Where is it located? We're also going to talk about the brazen altar and the material that is used, that was used, that was to be used for uh, its construction. Uh, we're also going to look at specifically also its horns. Why are there horns and why does he use the word horns? What is the purpose of the horns? Because he mentions them distinctly that there are to be horns on all four corners. So let's begin first of all to speak of its position. If you find your place here in Exodus chapter 27, we read just about the altar, but very early, very soon after that, it's in Exodus chapter 29 that we're going to read about its position. Where is this piece to be found with respect to the tabernacle in the outer court? Again, now we're outside of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 11, notice what the Bible says, And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, when we read that, we get a sense here that this brazen altar is going to be by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. That that is where the sacrifice is going to take place before, notice the words in verse 11, before the Lord. Before the Lord. So the position here is strategically placed based on God's revelation to Moses uh, to be when the sacrifice is going to be performed on the brazen altar, it's going to be performed before the Lord. Uh, and I, I want to emphasize this at this point, because if we're not careful, we might think that all of this is for Israel. No, all of this is for God. Uh, all of this is for the glory of God. Uh, now, man will benefit from the testimony, but what is to be performed on the brazen, uh, brazen altar, the children of Israel are to understand that this is to be done before God. Uh, it is no doubt uh, as they're going to bring their sacrifices as an atonement for their sins, there is a benefit for them, but their perspective is that we're doing this for God, that this is what God demands. This is what God is satisfied with. This is what God requires. And so they're to do this before the Lord. 
It's at a later time in the book of Leviticus in chapter 15. Now, if you uh, go to Leviticus chapter 16, uh, Leviticus chapter 16 details for us the, the day of atonement, that one day of the year that the high priest can enter with the blood into the Holy of Holies. But before that, before Leviticus 16 comes Leviticus chapter 15, and notice with me Leviticus 15, verse 14 and 15. On the eighth day he shall take on him two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and uh, come before the Lord unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and give them unto the priest, and the priest shall offer them the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord for his issue. Notice we have the, these words coming again and again. This is going to be done before the Lord. Uh, remember, it is the tabernacle that uh, sits here. Uh, this is where God will commune with man. The brazen, uh, the brazen altar is on the outside, but notice in its position is to be, it is to be performed before the Lord, in the sight of the Lord. That's the position that it occupies. It sits in front of the door, in front of the place, in front of the place of entrance. That's where the brazen altar sits. That, it's, uh, that is its, uh, its position. In, uh, go back with me in, in, uh, back to chapter 27. Again in verse 1, he speaks of the altar, and we're going to look in just a little while at, at, its, uh, at its size that is mentioned here in verse 1. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. Now, if we've already noted some of the pieces of furniture and I could bring them out, and I do believe that uh, this is rather accurate with regards to the size of these, these pieces of furniture compared to the size of the brazen altar. And so if you notice, those pieces that are on the inside are about the size in comparison with the brazen altar. That is significantly bigger. The, in other words, uh, the brazen altar is larger than any other piece of furniture. You might nearly fit all of the other pieces, including the altar of incense that comes later within the brazen altar. And we have to say at this point that we cannot avoid that its size in comparison with the other pieces speaks of the importance and the emphasis that God places himself, remember, Moses didn't come up with the dimensions. God did. God would say here in our text, when he speaks of the brazen altar, he says, you're going to do it exactly as I have said. And so God here gives Moses, gives the children of Israel, gives us a sense of perspective with regards to the importance of the brazen altar. Let me put it this way. When you offer a sacrifice on the brazen altar, you don't need to make it that big to offer to put an animal on it. In other words, you can fit more than one. So the size is, is much more than convenience. It communicates to us with regards to its importance. Moses is to do it exactly that way. Again, this is the testimony of God. This is the tabernacle of the testimony. 
And God is testifying to us here right now that out of all the pieces of furniture, the most important one, the one that He wants us to remember, the one that He wants us to pay attention to is this one. Not that the others are not significant, but that this one stands out above the others. Now, why? I'm, we're going to see that in just a moment. Although they all communicate Jesus Christ, uh, the brazen altar does so, does so quite forcefully in its picture. Uh, which brings us to the next point. In verse 2, we note its material. Now, it's mentioned in verse 1 that the altar is made of shittim wood, which is, by the way, the same wood that was used for the ark and the mercy seat and the table of shoe bread and the lampstand and so on, uh, the boards as well, it was all made of that same wood. And we talked about that emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. But all that we've read thus far for all the other pieces of furniture is that they're all to be overlaid with gold but not the brazen altar. Notice verse 2. And thou shalt make horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horn shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay the, this altar with brass. Uh, all of a sudden here we see that there is a material change. Everything inside of the tabernacle is overlaid with gold. Now what, all, what we're going to see on the outside, we'll see not just the brazen altar, later uh, the laver, is to be overlaid with brass. Uh, later in Exodus chapter 38, he mentions, And therewith he shall make the sockets of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the brazen altar. So then it's referred to later. Here we see it's an altar overlaid with brass. It's called later the brazen altar and the brazen gate for it, and all the vessels of the altar. And so there is a distinction between what the eye, the eye would see on the inside of the tabernacle, with what the eye would see on the outside of the tabernacle. You see, what is this material of brass representative of? Uh, why is it not of gold like all of the others why is it of brass? Uh, what is the material representative of? Well, brass in Scripture is emblematic very often of judgment. Uh, let me give you a, a few illustrations. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. In Numbers and chapter uh, 21. Uh, in Numbers chapter 21, uh, you would know here that uh, the children of Israel... Uh, were murmuring against the Lord, and they were rebelling against the Lord, and so God sent serpents among them. And uh, they were bitten, and uh, because of this bite, uh, the people would die. But notice what happens in verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of what? Of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, 
He lived. He lived. You see, the, 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 the brazen serpent was chosen specifically because what God had done to the children of Israel is He had judged them. And when they're asking for grace and for mercy, uh, God tells Moses to put forth a fiery serpent on a pole before them, and Moses makes a serpent of brass. And so here we have this same material of brass. Uh, it's uh, er, uh, a little later in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28. So near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, God, through Moses, issues a number of warnings to the children of Israel before they enter into the promised land. He says, look, if you, if you do this, if you obey, you get a blessing. If you disobey, you get a curse. And he, he mentions throughout uh, the book of Deuteronomy a number of warnings, but he speaks also quite extensively about the judgment of God that's going to come upon them if they are found to be rebels against God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, notice what we find here, uh, what is mentioned in verse 21. Again, this is talking about uh, the Lord judging his people. Let's go back to verse 15. He says, but, And it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and flocks and thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest, settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he have consumed thee from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. So that, this is judgment, isn't it? This is judgment. This is a curse. Verse 22. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword uh, and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be what? Brass. You see, one of the ways that God says, I will rain down a blessing. Here he said, heaven is going to be shut off. You're going to be cursed. And so the brass, he says, the heavens will be brass. In other words, you're going to be under the judgment of God. That's what he says. And so this brass in the scriptures is emblematic of the judgment of God. It's interesting that he mentions here over and over the word cursed. Cursed. Now it is Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 that tells us that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We see that even in Revelation chapter 1. Let's go to one more reference to show us here this theme and brass being connected to the judgment of God. Turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 1. So uh, in Revelation chapter 1, the book, by the way, it's in your Bibles, it might be called the Revelation of John the Divine. That's what I have. It's not the Revelation of John the Divine. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, if you notice the first verse of Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what the book should be entitled, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice how Jesus is introduced to us in chapter 1. Notice verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. By the way, here, the book of Revelation is introducing to us that Jesus Christ, the first time he came, he came as our Savior, but the next time he come, he will come as a judge. And the revelation of Jesus Christ shows us that he does come as a judge, and here he is seen with feet of brass. He is coming, that's what it means, in judgment with his feet of brass. Now, having that theme of brass being uh, an emblem of the judgment of God, uh, we may think about the wood. That was the first part, right? It's made of wood, and it's to be overlaid with brass. Now, while the wood as we've seen as the theme throughout this tabernacle, speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ and the gold in the other pieces of furniture speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. Here the wood no doubt speaks of the humanity of Christ, but the brass, the brass speaks of the capacity of Jesus being able to endure the judgment of God. We have so far the gold, and we emphasize his deity. And here we're not living his, leaving his deity. His deity is still the theme because man cannot abide under the wrath of God, but the Son can. The Son is able to, has the capacity to endure the judgment of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And uh, turn with me to Psalm 89. We read here a uh, prophetic statement about, about Jesus Christ. And notice in, in Psalm 89, and verse 19 with me. Then thou speakest in vision to thy Holy One, and saith, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, I have exalted one chosen out of the people. Now here, I believe that the Holy One, consistently through the book of Psalms, is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son. Uh, the, in verse 18, the Holy One of Israel is our King. Verse 19, Then thou spakest in vision to thy Holy One, and said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. Uh, one of the areas is not that the, the, the brass is emblematic of the judgment of God, but the point of the brass itself is that brass was also fitly chosen because that material has the capacity to resist heat and the pressure of the heat better than gold or silver. You see, brass is often referred to in Scripture in connection to its ability to endure, to resist, 
it shows us in Scripture that brass is sufficient against opposition. Let me show you a few references. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 33. Deuteronomy in chapter 33. So right at the end here of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, notice with me, Verse 24 and 25, he speaks here of the tribe of Asher, and he says this, And of Asher, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. Let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be, notice, iron and what? Brass. And as thy days show, so shall thy strength be. So here, the brass is connected to what? To strength, to its ability to endure, to its ability, its sufficiency against opposition, uh, to its ability to uh, resist in the sense. In the book of Jeremiah, turn with me uh, to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 1. Notice Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 18. And the word of God says, For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And God says that you're go I'm going to make you as such and because I have made you as such, as a wall of brass, you will be able to resist. And so not only is the, 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 the brass emblematic of the judgment of God, but with it in the scripture we have that incorporated that is its ability to resist, its ability to endure, its uh, sufficiency against opposition. And so it is clear, by the way, here that we find Jesus Christ in that Jesus Christ is seen here as being able to endure and not Him as the sacrifice and not be completely consumed under the wrath of God. Now, the proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, that He came under the wrath of God, but He was not consumed. He was able to endure the wrath of God. Only He could do that. Only He could do that. You see, it is there at the brazen altar that we find, I believe here, a picture, of, a perfect picture of the holiness, the righteousness, and the perfect judgment of God towards sin. And yet, at the very same time, we find a perfect picture of the mercy, the long-suffering, and the grace of a loving God towards the sinner. It's interesting when we uh, think about this, uh, this, this brazen altar. And, and look, we're going to talk about the lamb, and we're going to talk about the goat and the, the sin offering. We're going to talk about that when it gets to the offering. Right now we're just looking at how does the altar speak of Christ. And the altar itself, in the material that was chosen, uh, uh, speaks to us not just of the judgment of God, but with that, with the ability of the material to endure what is to take place upon the altar. And so Jesus Christ is the one who endured the judgment of God, uh, 
and who was the only one who had the capacity to endure the judgment of God. Now, if you turn with me in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, so, so we find something in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is called of the Lord. And if you remember in the first part of the book of Isaiah, uh, God really lists his grievances against the children of Israel. And he's going to send Isaiah in chapter 6 to go out and to uh, represent him and to be his voice uh, to the people. And we see here Isaiah's calling and God moving in the life of Isaiah to cause him to preach to the people. But notice something that we find in Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, I want you to pay attention here as we read the text to specifically, we're going to read about the altar. And often we, we talk about the Lord high lifted up, but there's an altar that is mentioned there, and that's what I want us to pay attention to. So he sees the, uh, the Lord high lifted up, verse 2, above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. Now, now by the way, God in the first Five chapters of Isaiah had just talked about his grievances against the children of Israel. And Isaiah, who's hearing God's grievance against them, now he is brought face to face with God, and he doesn't see anybody else. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the what? The altar. Notice what happens. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sins purged. Now let's just pause here. Uh, there, there are several things we note uh, in this scene. Again, Isaiah sees the Lord. And here when we look at this altar, I believe that there's a picture for us here that the altar itself is Christ. The live coal upon the altar is a picture of God's judgment that consumes sin that has brought an offense to God. That's what the live coal does. It, the coals, the fire, consumes the offering. The offering, the sacrifice, is emblematic of sin. The fire consumes the sin. And so while Christ is the altar, the live coal is a picture of God's judgment upon the altar, consuming the sacrifice, consuming the sin that brings, that has brought an offense to God. And the offense... Now, for Isaiah, is consumed by the live coal, which means that the iniquity for Isaiah is taken away and his sin is purged. You see, that's a picture of what takes place on the brazen altar. 
on the brazen altar, the children of Israel would bring a sacrifice as an offering for their sin. They would put their hand upon, if they bore a goat, they would put their hand on the head of the goat before they gave it to the priest, signifying that my sin is passed on to the goat. And then the priest would take the goat, and we'll see just a moment of what the horns are used for, uh, but he uh, kills the goat, he lights the fire, the fire consumes the goat, and that's a picture of God's judgment. The altar is able to endure, the altar is able to endure the judgment, but not the sacrifice. The sacrifice is consumed, the altar endures, and yet the picture of that sacrifice is completely consumed, it's gone, which is emblematic of our sin. That's what takes place on that altar. And in the scene, we have an illustration of that in Isaiah, when he said, woe is me. But then he saw on the altar, as he looked at his iniquity and his, his wickedness, the live coal came and was put on his lips. His sin was gone. It was consumed. It was, it was, it not, it's not that it wasn't judged. It was judged under the wrath of God. So the coal that is burning on the altar, uh, by the way, we're going to see that that fire on the altar was never put out. It was never put out. In other words, as they would set up the tabernacle and they would lay all the tribes around the tabernacle, 24-7, you would see smoke coming from the altar. The children of Israel would know that at any moment, if they'd commit any sin or any transgression, at any moment they could come to the altar and bring their sacrifice. It was always available. And so the coal is always burning on the altar, waiting for the sinner to, to, see, to see God's holiness and God's judgment as the smoke goes up. But knowing in that moment that as that is emblematic of the judgment of God, that they can bring a sacrifice as an atonement for their sin, and that their sin might, be, might come under the judgment of God. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is to us. You see, there's the smoke and there's the wrath of God, and it rises And when we see God in His holiness. Uh, we say, oh, well, what can I do? I'm a sinner. I, I, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. I don't deserve to have communion with God. But then we turn and we look at the altar, and the altar is smoking, and there's fires, and there's live coals, and the judgment of God is ready to consume our sin. And yet we bring a sacrifice as a representative of our sin. And the one who is our representative is also Jesus Christ. And he, God, hath made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is then that the sinner may see the altar of God's wrath and recognize that only by God's judgment, only by God's judgment upon the altar can his iniquity be taken away and his sin purged. Leviticus 6.13 The first shall ever be burning upon the altar, it shall never go out. Never go out. In Exodus 29, 37, seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar, an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar, whatsoever toucheth the altar, the Bible says, shall be holy. 
Have you touched the altar? Jesus Christ? Then you have been made holy. You don't become holy through a process. You become holy by contact with Jesus Christ upon the altar. And the sufficiency of His sacrifice. He is able to endure we would not. You know, it's interesting that uh, I just read in Exodus 29, 37. If you notice the word, uh, turn with me to Exodus 29. Let's go back to Exodus 29. I I, I mentioned earlier, and and perhaps uh, we we, we might tend to think that the most important piece of furniture is the piece of furniture that is located in the Holy of Holies. And I... I would agree with that because of its location. That's the place of communion with God. But remember, this is God's testimony. And I'm interested in what God says about the different pieces of furniture. You know that the ark and the mercy is called holy? You know that the table of shoe bread is called holy? Do you know that the candlestick is also called holy? You know that everything that is part of the tabernacle, from everything is called holy? But there are two things that are called most holy. You know what they are? Both of them concern the altar. If you notice with me in Exodus chapter 29, notice verse 37. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar. What does it say? Most holy. These are God's words. Go to chapter 30, verse 10. Notice with me. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Go to with me to chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. Uh, excuse me, chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 10. And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels and sanctify the altar and it shall be an altar most holy. I want you to think about this. God does not call the ark most holy. He does not call the table of shoe bread most holy. He does not call the candlestick most holy. He calls the altar most holy. We might say here so far as we've seen that what is most holy is what is the furthest from man. No, to God, what is most holy is the one that is closest to man. In other words, something happens at the brazen altar that shows us that this is what God wants us to know, how we can have entrance into the most holy of holies. In other words, there's a lot going on here, but there's only one place where something begins that ends in the holy of holies. And it's what takes place on the brazen altar. It is only what takes place on the brazen altar 
that gives the opportunity once a year for the high priest to come into the Holy of Holies. It is only what takes place here. If you notice, nothing that takes place into the holy place, at the table of shoe bread or at the candlestick uh, or at the altar of incense, grants entrance into the Holy of Holies. There's only one place, one service, one sacrifice that grants entrance, and that is what takes place on the brazen altar. And so God says that is the most holy. That's what God wants Moses to know. That's what God wants Moses to communicate to the children of Israel. To God, notice, it is, not, it is not to us what we might think is most holy. It is what God says is most holy to Him. The holiness of God, I believe, is the chief attribute of God. It is the attribute that permeates all other attributes. In other words, I believe that the justice of God is a holy justice. I believe that the love of God is a holy love. The holiness of God is the attribute of God uh, that permeates all other attributes. And so God says that the brazen altar is the most holy. Now, there's one more thing we know about this brazen altar, and we're going to see much with regards to its service. Right now, I'm trying to look just at the brazen altar, but go back with me to Exodus chapter 27, and notice with me uh, the, the horns. Well, what's the horns about? Well, notice with me, verse 2, And thou shalt make, Exodus 27, 2, And thou shalt make the horns upon it, upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. So here we have the horns, and we have to ask our questions here. What was the purpose of the horns? Well, I love it when we don't have to speculate. We could just see if the Bible says something, and then uh, what is the purpose of those horns? Well, turn with me to Psalm, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. I, I, I'm trying to get there before you. might get there before me. I'm trying to get there before you so I can preach it to you before you find out. Uh, notice Psalm 118, notice verse 27. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. What was the purpose of the horns? The purpose of the horns was that the priest would grab some cords as the animal would be trying to get out of this moment of sacrifice, the cords would be, would be used to hold the beast down upon the altar. It was once the cord were fastened to the animal, to the four corners of the altar, that then the priest would cut the throat of the sacrifice and let the sacrifice bleed out and then have the fire to consume the sacrifice. So the horns are specifically used down, used to hold down the sacrifice. Uh, and core and horns, when we think about horns that hold the sacrifice down, uh, they are emblematic of power and strength. In the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3 verse 4, the Bible says, And his brightness was as the light, he had horns coming out of his hand, and there was, there, in the horns, was the hiding of his 
power. So when we think about the cords tied to the horns, the horns are emblematic of the power that is able to hold the sacrifice down. So what does that mean? Well, if we think about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is pictured in the brazen altar, but we also know that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, but yet we have the horns. And we have to consider here uh, that uh, those who were the uh, sacrifice, and although we have all of this, it points us to Jesus Christ, we understand that none of those things were sufficient to take away sin. It was not by the blood of bulls and of goats that any man's sin was taken away. These were picture for us of Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? Uh, the lamb was selected from the flock. Didn't have a choice. And it was bound on the altar. The goat was, uh, was uh, selected from the flock and it was bound to the altar. It was, it was held down. Uh, but it's not so with the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? No man took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. Turn with me in the gospel uh, according to John. John chapter 10. Turn with me there to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, notice with me verse 17. Notice John chapter 10 verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Notice verse 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. We remember Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He, he was obedient unto that death. And uh, Jesus makes it clear that no man takes uh, my life, I lay it down of myself. I know not only have the power to lay it down, but I have power to take it again. So the question is here, in, in the cross, they, they, uh, you remember the, the, the soldiers and the Jews, they were mocking. They said, if thou be the Son of God, uh, then come down. That's what they said, didn't they? Did Jesus have the power to come down? Of course he did. He, he could call 10,000 angels and they would have been there to set him free. He could have, by the way, he didn't have to call any angels. He could have just spoken and just as he had done earlier when they come looking for Jesus Christ and Jesus said, I am, and they all fell backwards just by his word. He had the power to do all the, they wanted. There was no man that was holding him and binding him down to the altar that he was on as he was offering himself as a sacrifice. So we have to ask ourselves here, what is it? What's the picture in the brazen altar? What is it that was holding him down on the altar? Why is it that he refused to come down? I think there's one word that I can think of and that is love. 
You see, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, But God commendeth His love. Commendeth means He, he demonstrated he proved His love for man. But God commendeth His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. Uh, uh, turn with me to the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 3 verse 4, the Bible says, But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so the Bible says this is the, the demonstration of the kindness and the love of God towards man. When that appeared, it is by grace that we are saved by the mercy of God. Turn with me, turn, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. What, what is it that kept Jesus on the cross? 1 John chapter 4. Notice with me verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so I affirm to you that although we look at the brazen altar and we know that the horns are to be used to keep the sacrifice down so that the sacrifice does not leave the altar. And so you have to bind him down. What is it that bound Jesus Christ to the cross as the sacrifice that caused him not to come down? Love. You see, God's love, the love of Jesus Christ for sinners, is what bound him to the horns of the brazen altar. That is the power that held him down. Not the power of man. Don't misunderstand. He was not a martyr. He was not at the mercy of man. He laid down his life of his own. No man took his life from him. But love was the motivating factor. You see, at the brazen altar, we see the holiness and the judgment and the justice of God. And at the very same time, we see the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And they are met together at the brazen altar. That's why God says that that, that peace is most holy. That peace is the one that communicates best for us who God is and what He has done for us. Now, what do we do with that information? I have to give us an exhortation here. Well, let me give it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That he, and, and that he died for all, that they which live. <laughs> Are you living today in Christ? that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 1 John even 4.19 says, we, we love him because 
He first loved us. You see, that's the simple exhortation of the brazen altar. It is the place that God calls most holy. And by the way, just so we know that the only place that granted access into the Holy of Holies was what took place on the brazen altar. If you were to be on the outside and you were part of the Levites, if you would enter into the door on the outside, the first thing you would see would be the brazen altar. And if anything was ever to be done in the tabernacle, in the holy place, in the holy of holies, every single entrance, a man would have to walk by the brazen altar. It's there for a purpose. To remind man time and time and time again. And Moses would tell the people, when you come and do your service, you Levites, when you bring children or your sacrifice and you come to the door and you hand it to the priest, the one thing you see foremost, the one piece of furniture that is bigger than all the other pieces, the one piece of furniture that is the most holy, the one piece of furniture that gets you access into the Holy of Holies is the brazen altar. You see, this piece, the brazen altar itself, we're going to talk about the sacrifice later, but the brazen altar itself points us to Christ. Where the, 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 the justice and the judgment and the wrath of God are met together with the grace and the mercy and the love of God. They're met together. And they communicate to us who God is.